read the next portion of our Acts passage, our next portion of the book of Acts that we'll be going through today, reading for you and your hearing verses 17 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison security locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, his, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as the leader, as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For behold, these days Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of this Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us now. Open our hearts and ears, our minds and our lives to obedience and thanksgiving of your word and your truth of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to go through this particular passage and look at different things that are going on there. But one of the most obvious things from the very beginning of this passage is jealousy. And I would like for us to hone in on that to understand jealousy because I think that the whole passage thematically has a lot to do with jealousy. But not just the jealousies of the Sadducees and the high priest but the jealousy of God. So today, we're going to look at three different parts of jealousy. One is jealousy of, which means things that we are jealous of. And jealousy for, things that we are jealous for to do. And then, to think about jealousy with a capital J, which a a bit of a hint is God himself. Because it's difficult for us, like I mentioned earlier, for us to put our minds around the character of God when we think about jealousy because we know our own jealousy. This week, Knox and I were um, at a hotel and we were eating breakfast and I looked up and I saw this statue, not a statue, but a trophy for the hotel. And it was, a tro- it was an image of uh, passing a torch to the next person, kind of like the Olympic torch. And you had two runners, and they were in the midst of, of transfer with the torch in the air. And you could tell that the second runner had his head back in almost relief and, and, and elation from getting the torch to the next person. But as I looked at that for a moment, and I dwelled on it, and I guess maybe somehow or another in the context of my life of being a father and maybe receiving some texts from Jennifer about how her morning was going or how her night went the night before, it transitioned to something totally different. I saw these two brothers fighting over the torch and the other one going, ah! (laughs) Like, give it back to me. And it became predominant. I couldn't see the glory of the trophy anymore. For this was a trophy for the hospitality for this hotel had achieved some great success in being hospitable um, in their chain. And every time I looked, I said, Knox, what do you see there? You know, I see, you see these two brothers fighting. And we became very related to that. 
That's what we saw it from then on. It lost its glory because we are very familiar, if you're a parent or a sibling, if you've been around any families, you've been around and associated, unless you've lived alone in a cave, you know what it's like to have that kind of childish jealousy of an item, something that you want to possess, often sometimes not provoked until the other person takes it. And then there's this fighting, and, and that's what I saw. And it diminished it. And I thought, you know, that's what happens to us when we see God. And that's what I mentioned there in the passages earlier, that we often, our mind, we are distracted. We are these finite beings that are, are not, have not yet come to a place of perfection. It's hard for us sometimes to grasp the goodness and the righteousness of the character of God because we get in the way. And so today's attempt is to look at this passage, which is a highlight of sinful jealousy and the response to that. But also, I believe that the obedience and the faithfulness and the centerpiece of what is going on in this passage has to do with a righteous jealousy and a righteous zeal of the covenant of God. And so, can you remember in scriptures, this is a bit of a Bible test, when do you think the first time jealousy is mentioned in the scriptures? Cain and Abel? Any other takers? Satan's jealousy of God? In the historical order, chronological order versus maybe... <laughs> Good. Any other? Right. Where else do you think? It's a bit of a trick question, which a lot of my questions are. You know, historically, when you look for the word jealousy, depending upon what, what, which English translation that you have, um, you might see it land on Rachel and Leah. When Rachel became jealous of Leah when she was unable to bear a child. You may see it um, with Joseph and his brothers. But I think all of your answers are correct, as I thought it through too. I thought in every essence of sin, to some degree, have some covetous nature of human sinful jealousy. Cain was Jealous of Abel because of why? Why was he jealous of Abel? Something that he thought belonged to him went to someone else. The same thing, the affections that Rachel had, wanting to have the affection of her husband, wanting to have a child, the blessing of a child, went to someone else. And then the glory that Satan desired, he wanted something from God. So when we think about all of the concepts of, or all of the portrayals of jealousy or envy, it's somebody wanting something for themselves, often when it's in sinful jealousy. But when we think about God, is God jealous? Yes. Where do we see the first time God being described as being jealous? <coughs> In the commandments. Which commandment? 
What's that? And where's that? Which commandment? Second commandment. It's to, to worship him. It has to do with his worship. And that we are to worship him. You know, first he says, I am God. And you have no other gods. But you are to worship him. And not to worship images. Not to worship things of creation. But to worship the creator. For he is a jealous God. And then we'll see that theme throughout the scriptures. Once the law is given, it's repeated. So much that even in a, another portrayal or another giving of the law... He says that his name is Jealous. But it's actually his name with a capital J. But reading about this in a variety of different commentaries, I saw that Jamin Boy says, rightly understood, the idea of jealousy is central to any concept of God. So for us to rightly understand God... We must understand his jealousy. We must understand this is a part of his character. It's not a character that we think about. And when we think about his names or when you hear songs or hymns, you know, we don't talk about him. You know, we'll say he's Emmanuel. He is with us. You know, he is righteous. He is good. He is love. He is all these things. We don't say he's jealous. Yes, he's jealous. (laughs) We don't put that into the category, but he calls himself that. He names himself jealous and it is my encouragement to you today that we should be elated and thankful that he is jealous but we need to go in to first and then how the passage to understand what's going on in this particular passage with the Sadducees and with the high priest as they are filled with jealousy This is something that we become much more accustomed to. This is something that we experience. This is something that is still very much interwoven in our personalities and in our response as we are still in the flesh and sin. It was because they were filled with jealousy that they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So when we think about jealousy, one of the best places to go is to go to the book of James. It says, and here we have, we have the teachers. We have the teachers of the law. We have the teachers of wisdom. These are not just people who are just on their own or, or they're just mad or they're just walking around and they encounter the, the disciples and the apostles. These are people who are known for their wisdom, for being those who are of God's word. But James says, who is wise and understanding among you? This is in James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We see here that this is a confirmation of all of these answers that you gave are very much correct because we see that every vile practice has some type of relationship to this sinful human jealousy. This is not something that should be a characteristic of wisdom. This is not a characteristic of those who are pure or peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. But if we're seeking a harvest of righteousness, it is going to be sown in peace by those who make peace. And so these people, if these are supposed to be teachers of righteousness, they are not being motivated by the things that are promoted, promoting righteousness. But they are being motivated by things that are earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What is it that is going on in this jealousy? Well, they desire the recognition of what is going to these particular apostles. But even more than that, the thing that they're most focused on is the name. Again, this is going back to where they were earlier on. They are so focused on do not preach in this name. Do not preach in the authority and in the power, in the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. You can do whatever you want to do, but do not preach Jesus. And quit putting us as those who are the ones, you're putting the blood onto us that we killed him. And then Peter turns around and says, we can only obey God. We can only do what God tells us, and you did kill this Jesus by hanging him on a tree. And so this jealousy is interwoven with their desire to have something. They want something that the apostles have, but more so even than that, they want something that Jesus has. They want that glory, which is very much in the same light of what Satan wanted from the very beginning. That's why it is demonic to desire that kind of glory for ourselves. And so we see that the contrast to jealousy is humility. We see that there's a meekness of wisdom. We see that if we once we encounter the truth, that the truth will break jealousy. It says that this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but this is disorder, and it is full of selfish ambition. As I was thinking about this with my family, I gave an example. It's probably an example that they could relate to. And it's talking about, you know, say I went on a date with Jennifer. And if, we went up, if I went on a date with Jennifer, she was going to want to go to either Chick-fil-A or Cookout. So, so we're gonna, that's just where she always wants to go. And so we're going through Cookout drive-thru. And if you can imagine, I go around the Cookout drive-thru and say this is a time where there's not a mask mandate. And I can actually see the, the girl's face that's at the drive-thru. Or maybe I can't see her face. doesn't really matter. And if I said, after she gave me the food, if I said, thank you, sweetie. And then all of a sudden, Jennifer's like, (laughs) hits me in the leg. Now, what kind of jealousy is that? 
Is that a righteous jealousy? Is that an unrighteous jealousy? Imagine if it was a different scenario, same kind of thing, maybe a met Chick-fil-A, and pretty girl at the drive-thru window, and she hands us the food, and I say, thank you, ma'am, and then she's like, <laughs> and hits me in the leg. Now, that's probably two different kind of scenarios there. The sweetie is kind of a little bit more affectionate, right? And the ma'am is kind of, you know, understood, and it's kind of like, there's a fine line there. That maybe for a moment there, that if when I was at cookout, the girl at cookout, and I said, sweetie, maybe that's a righteous jealousy. What's, what is she doing there by hitting me on the leg? What do you think? Reminding me of my covenant. What does my covenant entail? To be truthful to her and to do what? Only call her sweetie. Only call her sweetie. That belongs to her. I'm not supposed to be going around and giving that kind of sweetie. Now, we're in the South, and that kind of can get mixed up a little bit because sometimes that's just normal language. So I don't want to put that as an absolute rule. It's not a biblical rule that necessarily if you're saying sweetie to people because if that's the case, you know, there's a lot of adulterous women out there because I get it. Hey, sweetie, you know, nobody will buy a pack of gum. Here you go, sweetie. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not any kind of an affection. That's a normal language around here. But my wife knows that I don't go around calling people sweetie. The only people I call sweetie are the people in my home. Knox and... (laughs) The ladies in my home. And she's okay with me calling my daughter sweetie. But that's it. And so it belongs to her. It's a reminder. And, And what is this? This is a bit of wrath, right? It's a wrath of a reminder of a covenant that needs to be kept. And that that belongs to her. Now, if I said ma'am, she knows that ma'am is a normative thing. I don't mean anything by ma'am. And if she hits me on the leg at that point, that's a jealousy that possibly is crossing a line. That's not necessarily there. I'm just like, what's up with you? You know, there's a paranoia. There's a fear. There's wanting something that's not necessarily hers. I don't, you know, I can't just not communicate to people. And there's, that's a very small circumstance, but it has very big implications to what is true between this godly jealousy and a false jealousy or a human sinful jealousy that's been perverted by our sin. These particular leaders are actually dealing with a paranoia fear that they're not going to get something that they think belongs to them, this glory, this affirmation, this acknowledgement. And maybe a type of an affection that they desire to have that the disciples are participating in, but ultimately is going to Jesus Christ. It is countering their kingdom. They're preaching about another king that is teaching about another honor and another glory beyond theirs. And they are filled with jealousy. But I want to think about the response of the disciples. The response of the disciples is also a type of jealousy. They said in response, when they were told to not do this, God told them something differently. He said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life in Jesus. This life 
in the spirit. The, this word life is Zoe in the Greek, but in this particular moment, it's capitalized. There's a potency to this description, not just about life. It's about this life in the spirit, this life in the work, in the power, in the authority of the work and command of Jesus Christ. And so they have the covenant of God being portrayed by or proclaimed by God himself to go and to speak it, to proclaim it. And so they have to respond when they are brought before this council that we can only obey God. That they have a particular zeal. They know that there is harm imminently, potentially before them in this council. They know that this could end in death. But they have understood the covenant and seen the power of God. They've seen it in the resurrection of Jesus. And so now they have this zeal for God. We see interesting examples of this in the Old Testament. Very colorful, um, vivid examples of this in the Old Testament The first we see with Phineas. What did Phineas do? He had a jealousy. He was actually complimented by God because of his jealousy. Does anybody remember what Phineas did? He killed people. Right. You had a situation with Israel was worshiping false gods. They were interweaving with the false gods of other nations. And they had interweaving with people. And God's wrath was about to come upon them. This little example of Jennifer hitting me on the leg or whatever is a very micro, micro, meme example of a reminder of a covenant. Well, God's wrath is a reminder of a covenant also. That when he is not receiving what is due to him in the second commandment, the worship and the honor that belongs to him, his wrath will come. And he's about to pour out his wrath upon Israel. And as Phineas is getting the point, he goes and with a spear, he kills two people as representatives of the wickedness that they had interwoven with. And God says, this is good. And he grants grace to Israel because of what Phineas has done. Another place where you see jealousy being proclaimed as a jealousy for God is with Elijah. Elijah's been proclaiming judgment and grace. We don't always think of it in that respect. But he's talking about his covenant-keeping promises, his protection of that covenant by proclaiming his wrath, just like Jennifer, when she hits me in the leg, it's a wrath, but it's also a protection. Get it back in line to the covenant in which you have made. That affection belongs to me. God's wrath proclaimed by the prophets goes first saying, because you have sinned, I'm going to bring my wrath. But as you listen to the prophets He says, I love and honor and I am so jealous for my covenant. I am going to bring 
salvation to my people. I am going to bring restoration to my people. And so Elijah is preaching this and he's being threatened. They're trying to kill him. And he's weary and he's up to the point where he's just like, I'm done. You see this in Kings. I'm done. I'm ready to die. I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm empty. And what happens? God feeds him with an angel. and tells him to get up. And then he encounters him. And he says, what are you doing in this cave? And Elijah says, I am jealous for the Lord and for his covenant. Israel has gone after other gods. And they seek to kill me. And then he says, I'm the only one left. And then God says, go outside. Stand on the mountain. And God comes down in earthquake and wind. Or or he, he puts wind before him. He puts earthquake before him. He puts fire before him. And it says that he could not be found in those things. And then there's a whisper. And then when the whisper happens, Elijah covers himself. There's a fear. In this faint whisper of God's word, God was found in his word. And he responds again, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I have zeal for you. I have zeal for your covenant. A covenant that your people has not kept. And they want to kill me. And I'm all alone. (laughs) By myself. I'm the only one left. And God says, well, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to go and you're going to appoint these kings. And you're going to appoint your successor. And then I'm going to preserve 7,000 that have not yet bowed. There are other people out there, Elijah, <laughs> that have not yet bowed. Didn't kiss the bell. There's this refreshing that is given to Elijah, both in food but also in word. And in an encouragement that it's not all in vain. But it sometimes comes in a place of whisper. But we see this example that it was good for Elijah to have this zeal for the Lord. And yes, he's human. He is weak. He is responding that he is tired and he is weary and he feels alone. But even that whisper of God's word sustained and was powerful for him. And re-encouraged him. To continue on in his calling. Here we have the disciples are zealous for the Lord. They are jealous for the Lord and his covenant being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That they're willing to face the jealousy of the Sadducees and the high priest, encounter it with the righteous jealousy of God, the reminder, the reminder of God's jealous promises that you see very vivid in the prophecies where God is showing all kinds of very descriptive language, even calling Israel a whore for their disobedience. And then saying, but even still, I am so jealous and zealous for my covenant. I am going to restore my people. And that is exactly what the disciples proclaim as they go back in the temple. They say, we must obey God. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on the tree. God exalted him at his, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. Israel. 
and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. Here they are, they're proclaiming the greatest hope in the whole world to the very people who are teaching the law and the prophets and saying it's right here in front of you. This is the answer. This is God's jealousy for His people that He has brought repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins through this Jesus whom you killed. And they don't get it. They are enraged. Their jealousy is beyond reason. Just as James says that you'll be able to hear reason, they can't hear it. Their jealousy is beyond that. They desire and they're so hungry and so lustful and so fearful and paranoid that they cannot even hear the grace right before them. They're missing out on the grace of God because of their jealousy. We would think, well, we wouldn't miss that. We would have heard that. We would have been so thankful for that, right? Well, we see throughout the epistles that even though the grace of God comes, we are constantly reminded, specifically the people of the church, the people who are His saved people, we have to be reminded over and over again not to have this bitter jealousy. When we have this bitter jealousy, we miss out on the benefit and the blessing of the fruit of the work of Christ in the Holy Spirit. That is what keeps us from it. One of the greatest Moments of grace, though, here is not just in the preaching. I mean, it is the preaching of Jesus, but it's an interesting moment of grace when we have Gamaliel, who is a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. He speaks. And I think here is a very interesting thing because we don't really have in God's word a conclusion of what happened to Gamaliel. Christian history indicates that they believe he converted to Christianity. There's only two places where he's highlighted. He's highlighted here, and then Paul references him as being one of the great teachers that taught him as a Pharisee. They actually sat at the feet. I mean, that means he really honored this teacher. And I think in this particular statement that he gives to the Pharisees is something that we need to hear. Because I think it is pointing to the jealousy of God. It's pointing to where we need to fall because it's in these particular moments that we can transition this whole story and, 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 and use it as a template for how we interact with one another in families, in marriages, and in the church, particularly in the church. Remember what's going on here. These are guys who they should, they should receive honor. They, these are guys that know stuff. They have the degrees. They have the reputation. And, and here are these uneducated backwoods fishermen preaching about an authority and a power and taking the attention of all the people right smack dab in the middle of the temple. And so you, kinda, you have to understand these are not just weirdos. These are people like us. These will be like, wait a minute, we deserve this. This is supposed to be for us. I mean, think about any kind of scenario that you have achieved recognition for or maybe you have achieved in your own mind that you understand something you know if it's like kind of like if 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 i started talking about 
you know, all of my abilities in home design. And Jonathan's like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I've done this stuff. I've been there. Or if I start talking about, you know, medical things, and then Steve's like, you know, and I act like I know more. <laughs> and, and, and I kind of push Steve aside saying, no, 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 Steve, you don't understand. You know, I know this. You know, Steve would be gracious. He would first think it's funny. <laughs> he might bop me on the back of the head. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> But this is even more intense. This is about stuff that they are, you know, this is the religion that they hold to. And these backwood preachers are coming in there proclaiming another authority. But then here's the one who's one who has some weight. He says, hold up. First, he, he indicates that he is a wise person because he's like, send him outside for a moment. You know, if you think about it, you know, he, he's, he's, he's working a, a system that's is very difficult because these are enraged, jealous Sadducees and chief priests. And he, he's trying to figure out a way to make peace in this situation. He's like, first, I want to talk to them, but not in front of them, in front of the, the apostles, because I don't want to belittle them in front of the apostles. So I'm going to send them out. And he says, listen. And he uses reason with them. He's reasoning, very good reason. Because you've got to think where he is at. He's been studying this. He taught Paul. He knows God's word. Now, I don't know what's going on in his mind, but it's likely he's kind of like, I don't know about this. I don't know how this is going to go down. So he encourages us to listen. If, if these guys are just preaching something that's of man... You don't need to worry about it. It'll die out. In essence, God will take care of it. You don't have to have control here. You don't have to pour out the vengeance here. Why is that the case? Because vengeance is of the Lord. But if if these guys are preaching the truth, if what they say is true, This jealous God, this jealous God who loves his covenant, and if he has fulfilled his covenant in Christ, man, you don't want to be on the opposing end of that. You don't want to receive the wrath if you're the ones who is stopping God and keeping his covenant to his people. And how can we apply that to our own lives? There's all kinds of circumstances. I know, and particularly in ministry, that you know, I see things and certain things happen, and I'm like, oh, I don't want it to go that way. I want it to go this way. Or these people need to do this, or need these people do that. And we start trying to operate as if we are God. Well, I learned this first as being a parent. We try to teach our children to do certain things, and we're like, oh, you know, we're, they're doing this, and we're wanting them to go here, we want to go there. But when we surrender that fear, and that paranoia, and often it's that we want their honor and their respect that really doesn't necessarily fully belong to us. Because as parents, our relationship with our children is limited and it's temporal. My relationship with my wife is limited in authority and it's temporal. My relationship as pastor is limited and it's temporal. When we surrender that fear and that grasping for jealous 
affirmation and acknowledgement, that sometimes affection, affirmation of who we are and how great we are, the glory that actually belongs to God. And we surrender that. We say, God is the one who is the jealous and righteous God who deserves our fear and our honor. God will take care of this. It diffuses the tension. Now, they were still coming down from their rage, and they still had to try to get some of that rage out by (laughs) pounding on them a bit before they released them. But they showed a little bit of wisdom by hearing what Gamaliel had to say. And I see here that if we are jealous and zealous for the righteousness of God, it takes away that tension, that performance anxiety, that rage to receive things that don't belong to us. And it's good to have jealousy for the Lord. It's a good thing to have jealousy for our children and jealousy for our spouses and jealousy for one another. But we must remember what Gamaliel is saying here is that we need to understand that it is limited, that we don't really understand all things. We have to also, when we think about families who have left, we might want to try to go through and think through why do people leave and why are people doing this? Why did people make these decisions? Why can't they do this? Or maybe even people who are still here, why don't they give me more affection or why don't they do this or that? And we can encourage one another into faithfulness. We're called to do that. We're to admonish each other in faithfulness. But when we look at the contrast in James, we see that that should be with a meekness. There should be a peace there. There should be a posture of humility. It doesn't say that we will remain silent. These apostles and their zeal for the Lord, they weren't flippant to the Sadducees. They just spoke the truth and did what God told them to do and said, we can only do what God tells us. You have to judge for yourself what you're going to do. We've got to obey God. We have to be zealous for his word and for the promises that he is keeping through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll see this again later on with Paul in Acts chapter 13. But I want to leave with you this calling for us to repent of our unfaithful jealousy and to adopt the zeal and jealousy of Jesus Christ by reading for you two passages. One to remember, just read a portion of it, And when Jesus went into the temple, he goes into the temple and he sees that they are profaning the temple by selling the goods, selling the sacrificial pigeons. And he says, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remember that it is written in the psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It was the zeal of Jesus Christ. It was the jealousy of his calling and his zealousy for the honor of his father and his zeal to be obedient to his father and his zeal and his jealous love for his bride that he faced the cross. Yes, he showed his wrath of correction to those in the temple, but then he says, I am going to be the one to fulfill the covenant promises, my covenant that I am jealous for. My zeal will consume me, and you will tear down this body, and I will raise it up in three days. Then in Titus 2, we are told in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. For what? For his own possession. And who are zealous for good works. Jesus' zealous jealousy of his people, his possession, the glory that belongs to him, but the love, the jealous love that he has for his bride is to be manifested in us. But what does that look like? A zeal of good works. A zeal of obedience. Why? Because we have now the Holy Spirit embodied in us. We are to respond with these new passions for the kingdom, not worldly passions. We are no longer to have the fear that we need to have that for ourselves. We are going to turn it around and point out God's glory as we are diminished as we are lower, as our glory is lessened, his is increased. I had this wonderful conversation, and I've got to share with you, with my neighbor yesterday. He was doing some yard work, and we stopped, and we first started talking about how hot it was. But then we quickly, because we both had a fear of the Lord, we both said, but, but the Lord can do what he wants to do with the heat. And then we said, you know, he can do what he wants to do with the rain. And we were talking about, he was telling me how he was praying for rain with his wife because his garden needed the rain and how the Lord brought rain. And he talked about how much abundance he had in, in the vegetables. He said, did you, did you like those tomatoes? And I said, man, those tomatoes were wonderful. And those grapes that you gave us, we're not going to be able to eat store-bought grapes. And he said, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. It just bless us with the good garden this year. He said, for some reason, we didn't get green, green beans. And then we started talking about, you know what? We were just called to plant. We're called to plant green beans, and sometimes God's not going to give us green beans. And we just kept going back. We're going back and forth. We're just, but God can do whatever he wants to do with the green beans. He can do whatever he wants to do with the rain. And then it led to salvation. He said, 
I don't know why the Lord's so gracious to us. I said, yeah, we're, we're, we're so unrighteous. And he said, you know, I sin every day. And he said, but the Lord saved us, didn't he? And I said, yes, he did. And we just went on and on. And then we got competitive about which one of us is more unrighteous and how great God has been to us. And, I thought, and we're sitting here, and I'm like, we've been here for a long time, and the cars have gone down the road. And it was just a constant reminder of our, and the more we talked about our unrighteousness, the more we talked about the glory and the goodness of the Lord. And it was such an edifying conversation. Here, we should be zealous for God's jealous love for us, His tremendous grace. Yes, we should be cautious. We should be fearful to not try to take away any of his glory. He can do whatever he wants to do with the weather. He can do whatever he wants to do with the green beans because he has poured out his promises upon us. And because of that, we have hope in him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tremendous grace and mercy. We thank you that you're so jealous. For your righteousness, you are so jealous for your holiness. You're so zealous for your goodness and your mercy and your love for your people. That you would send your son who shared that zeal all the way to the cross. And then that we, by the promise of the Holy Spirit, can share in that zeal as we proclaim your name. Father, make us zealous for you. Make us be zealous for your word, that even the whisper of your word, just a faint dose of your word, would cause us a holy fear and an encouragement and a refreshment to continue on in the proclamation of your truth. Increase our hope, our hope in your jealousy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and thank him for all things that he has provided us. Glory be to the Father.